When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Dad, I'm broke. Hey, broke. I'm Dad. Dad. Okay, don't you have cash saved up from babysitting? No, I spent it. I want my own bank account from S&T Bank. They offer free ATMs, Zelle, and an annual scholarship. Plus, when I open a Smart Start checking account, I get $100. See? I'm responsible. Hey, responsible. I'm Dad. Visit stbank.com slash smartstart for details. Bonus available July 1st through September 30th, 2022. Opening deposit balance of $50 required. Member FDIC. Welcome to an all-new season of the True Crime Never Sleeps Podcast. This season, we're diving into some of the most unusual missing person cases, from the shocking disappearance of Charlie Ross to the American Diatlov Pass disappearances. Welcome. Welcome to the True Crime Never Sleeps Podcast. Today we're continuing our series on the Investor Massacre. If you'd like to go back and watch the first part, I'll add the uh, video up top right here. But on the last episode, we discussed the arrest of John Peel, who some would assume was the perpetrator. Nonetheless, the arrest made headlines nationwide. And it seemed like resolution was close at hand for the largest murder case in Alaskan history. But the case presented by prosecutors over the next several years would reveal large gaps in the narrative they were weaving, leaving behind several questions which remain unanswered to this day. Despite ruling him out as a suspect early on, investigators had begun to circle around John Peel months later, and two separate phone calls had been received, calling in the tip line established by authorities. Two individuals told police that Beale should be investigated as a suspect in the eight murders, due not only to him matching the suspect's sketch, but him having a troubled history with the investor's owner, Mark Colthurst. John Peel had been identified by at least four witnesses who claimed to have seen him on the investor's skiff, traveling to and from the craft in the days around the murder. This included individuals from the casino, the trawler that first noticed the fire aboard the investor, and raced down to try and stop it. If you recall from the last episode, they had interacted with a young man heading to Craig aboard the investor's skiff. Another witness would claim that Peel was a young man seen purchasing gasoline the day before the fire, who it was reported left Craig's dock aboard the same skiff. However, these witness sightings weren't alone in building the case against John Peel. His prior relationship with the Coulthurst family in particular, Mark Coulthurst, 
was reported upon heavily in the weeks after his arrest. In addition to once dating Mark's sister, Peel had a prior crew had been a prior crew member for Mark on another ship that he kept in prior to the investor, but had reportedly been fired the years prior for allegedly alcohol and drug abuse, which was said to have permanently soured the relationship between John and Mark. Peel's lawyers would argue that he had not been fired from Mark's crew, but rather decided to work aboard another ship the following year. They would argue that two, two men had remained friendly in the years since, which was seemingly validated by many of Coulter's family members, who recalled Mark and Irene purchasing a wedding gift for John Peel after his assumed dismissal from the crew. The relationship between the two men would remain a point of contention moving forward, but the prosecutors alleged that Peel held a grudge against Mark for having been fired, which reached a tipping point on the evening of September 5, 1982. That night, a witness recalled seeing John Peel talking to the family while they attended Mark's birthday dinner at Ruth Ann's restaurant in Craig, claiming that he was speaking to Mark and Irene for the better part of ten minutes. Peel had another alleged run-in with two members of Mark's crew that evening, reportedly selling them weed. Peel later denied to authorities this when questioned. While all of the information seemed to implicate Peel in the murders, or at least supply the motive and opportunity needed to have committed the crime, it did very little to address some of the conflicting statements released by authorities in the past, or the gaps in that narrative that remain unexplained even after his arrest. For starters, John Peel had no prior criminal history, nothing that indicated the ability for such careless violence, nor any kind of impulsive criminal behavior. In fact, until his arrest, Peel had been a law-abiding citizen with no real character concerns. He had married his wife the years prior to the murders, and she had given birth to their first child, a son, roughly one year before Peel's arrest. By all indications, he was just a young man hoping to start a family, who had shown no sign of having been a vicious killer to anyone that he knew, or that knew him. To add on to this, several friends and family members said that it was impossible for Peel to have been the killer. This included many members of Coulter's family, who described him as friendly, outgoing, with a good sense of humor. He always seemed to get along well with Mark and his crew. One of Mark's family members even described him as a real present guy. Brett Ranmall, one of John Peel's friends, told reporters in the wake of his arrest why he didn't even have the nerve to punch anyone. I believe the killer was my mother, believe it was him. Additionally, despite some witnesses identifying John Peel as a suspicious man they seen seen in Craig around the time of the murders, just as many chose not to identify him as this individual, despite having multiple opportunities to do so. One of the men who had seen the young man from the skiff and, he, and originally told police about his sighting said they had previously known John Peel, and the man from the skiff was definitely not him. Another man that encountered the man from the skiff was shown John Peel in a photo lineup and responded, Oh, that's John Peel. No, I know him. Other witnesses were less decisive about their conclusions, stating that while Peel could have been the guy from the skiff, they weren't sure, since most of the young men in the area looked pretty similar. A man and a woman who had been among the first responders racing the boat out to the flaming investor had been unable to pick out Peel as a suspect, despite having spoken to the man from the skiff as they raced out to the burning shift. ship. During preliminary hearings following Peel's extradition to Alaska, his lawyer, Philip Widener, would allege that prosecutors 
at intimidating multiple witnesses into testifying in front of the grand jury. This allegation that authorities were leaning on witnesses, perhaps illegally, would come up again and again during these early he- hearings, causing at least two of the 24 witnesses to plead the fifth, claiming they had <clears throat> they now had doubts about the testimony they had presented in front of the grand jury. This allowed these witnesses to avoid potential perjury charges should it come to light that they had fabricated any part of their statements, but also began to put doubt in the minds of many that followed along with the story in the media. Peel's lawyer would also bring to light a discrepancy with the transcription of one of Peel's police interviews, which had been incredibly valuable in obtaining the grand jury indictment. The transcription submitted to the grand jury instead of the actual audio student that Peel told investigators, quote, I'm scared, man, I'm scared. I can't believe the things I did in there. However, Peel's lawyers alleged that Peel actually stated during the interview, I'm scared, man. I'm scared. I can't believe you all think I did that. The differences between the two were striking and could have possibly influenced the grand jury to pursuing charges against Peel. <clears throat> During almost all appeals court proceedings, he would wear a mask or an elaborate disguise, such as a fake mustache, wigs, glasses, in order to mask his appearance. His lawyer cited their client's safety, believing that his privacy was at risk of being permanently violated because of the high-profile nature of the case and would petition for Peel to be able to avoid being photographed by members of the press. They would even call for police to avoid taking him to him as he was transferred between buildings and jurisdictions in order to avoid tampering the jury pool for the upcoming trial. <clears throat> the trial itself was scheduled to begin in January of 1986, and was expected to run for more than two months, so that the jury could hear all the evidence for and against Peel's guilt in what had become the state's largest mass murder case to date. However, before that could happen, preliminary hearings were held to determine what evidence could be presented in the trial and to establish the limits of Peel's bail. In August of 1985, during these preliminary hearings, it became apparent that the allegations from the defense were finally beginning to lead somewhere when Ketchikan Superior Court Judge Thomas Schultz chastised prosecutors for failing to present potentially absolving evidence to the grand jury. He stated that the grand jury might have carefully weighed this evidence against the incriminating evidence presented by the prosecution, but never had the chance because prosecutors had withheld it from them. Instead of presenting only one side of the argument leading to Peel's indictment it was later learned that this potentially absolving evidence included numerous eyewitness statements from people that had seen the suspicious man on the skiff leaving the crime scene, but had purposely chosen not to identify John Peel as their guy immediately after the crime was reported, when their memories were fresh. Despite attempts by John Peel's lawyers to buy more time to prepare for their defense, the trial to decide his guilt was scheduled to start on January 13, 1986. As the trial began, the prosecution began to paint a picture of an employee seeking revenge against the man that had fired him from this lucrative position. They began to portray John Peel as someone that had worked with Mark in the past, but had been fired after the 1981 fishing season for drug and alcohol abuse. However, a year later, he ended up in the same remote town as the Colthurst family and decided to come aboard the investor on the night of the murders. While there, prosecutors argued he had likely gotten into an argument with his former friend and boss, which escalated into violence at some point 
that evening. After shooting and killing Mark and his wife, Irene, Peel had then gone on to murder the couple's two children and Mark's four crewmen, fearing that any of them would be able to identify him as the killer. He had then gone through the extensive process of attempting to scuttle the ship, but due to his unfamiliarity with the expensive new fishing vessel, he had then resorted to fire to destroy the crime scene. At least that's the argument prosecutors made through their extensive calling of witnesses throughout the trial. Some of these witnesses claimed that Peel had exhibited bizarre behavior both before and after the murders and seemed to express knowledge about the crime that was not common knowledge. Some of these witnesses claimed that Peel had known about the victims being shot to death before September 9, 1982 when the information was publicly released by authorities for the first time. The defense of John Peel took on many of the same tactics as the prosecution, calling numerous witnesses that seemed to dispute many of the prosecution's witnesses. These witnesses would cast doubt on John Peel being the man from the skiff, who had been seen by multiple witnesses, not all of whom agreed upon John Peel being the guy. Several eyewitnesses that had spoken to police in the wake of the murders, many of whom had seen an alleged man from the skiff, claimed that investigators had excessively used photos of John Peel in their photo lineups, with it being reported that eight of the 29 photos were just different photos of John Peel. It was believed that this might have been in the witness pool, making them more predisposed to pick out Peel as their suspect. In seven out of eight photos, Peel had been wearing a baseball cap, which fit the description of the man from the skiff who was wearing a dark baseball cap. Three out of the eight were mugshot photos taken from the interrogation room at Bellingham Police Department. Psychology professor from the University of Washington, who had been called upon by numerous law enforcement agencies to testify with state about this stacked photo lineup. I would hold this up as probably one of the worst examples of a photographic test. This is not a te- fair test. Peel's lawyers would float a theory during the trial that the murders might have been committed by a professional hitman, someone hired to carry out a hit on any of the eight victims. When Philip Widener had the opportunity to question Sergeant Chuck Miller of the Alaska State Troopers, he would ask about a witness who had heard explosive sounds approximately once an hour for several hours early on the morning of September 6th saying, isn't that consistent with someone holding the crew and executing them one by one, trying to get something from Mark? (coughs) Eleven women and five men had been selected to the jury pool in January of 1986 and were told from the get-go that four among them would be eliminated during the trial before reaching the deliberation phase. Eventually, the jury would be comprised of nine women and three men, none of whom were sequestered throughout the trial, but encouraged to refrain from discussing the case with anyone. These jurors would spend the better part of 1986 observing the trial, not breaking to deliberate till late August, almost seven months after the trial had started. Over the span of 25 weeks, they viewed more than 800 pieces of evidence, including more than 150 witnesses, all of whom had to be flown or shipped to the remote location of the trial, 
at the state's expense. The total cost of the trial was estimated to be nearly $2 million. On Thursday, August 28, 1986, following six days of deliberation, the jury informed Judge Thomas Schultz that they had been unable to come to a consensus regarding Peel's fate. The juror would later tell reporters that they had been leaning in favor of acquittal, being split 7-5 in favor of a not-guilty verdict, but leaning towards 9-3 on certain counts, but had been unable to come to a consensus after nearly an entire week of deliberating, resulting in hung jury. While the second trial of John Peel was originally scheduled to begin in the early month 1987, the timetable would come into question when Ketchikane Superior Court Judge Thomas Schultz was removed from the case. This would ultimately lead to several delays throughout the year, and the trial was not scheduled to make way until mid-November, more than five years after the murders themselves, and more than three years after John Peel had been originally arrested. In order to help save on the extravagant costs seen in the first trial, the trial was moved from Ketchikan to Alaska's capital, Juneau. There, hearings and jury selection would begin that November. The prosecution wouldn't start presenting the case until January 1988, and what was sure to be another lengthy endeavor due to a brand new jury having to hear the case and all of its witnesses for the first time. In their final closing statements, Peel's lawyers would use the prosecution's case against them, claiming that the state had no motive, no murder weapon, and more importantly, no physical evidence. Only speculation and hearsay, which had encouraged Peel's lawyers to make a last-minute play and not present any witnesses for their own side. They would also claim that the <coughs> state had failed to address how Peel could have overpowered five men and killed all eight of the victims before the investor, a question that has not been adequately explained throughout the trial. It remains unexplained today. <clears throat> if John Peel did not commit this crime, and prosecutors wasted years and millions of dollars pursuing the wrong man, and that but moves behind an even scarier proposition. Perhaps a killer was never identified correctly by law enforcement. Hell, for all we know, this might have been a single killer, but rather a group of killers who acted in tandem to murder all eight of the victims aboard the investor at once. In the decades since, some have theorized that drugs might have played a larger part in this story than originally theorized, based primarily upon statements made by the defense throughout the first trial. Peel's lawyers argued that the investor's owner might have been involved in drug smuggling to help pay for his 800,000 shipping vessel. In recent years, it has been theorized that four-year-old John Coulthers might have survived the fire, perhaps being kidnapped by the person responsible for the murders, but there has been no proof of that in the decades since. A man was seen by multiple witnesses using the investor's skiff in the days surrounding the murder. This man spoke to several people in Craig during that span, but would disappear into the chaos of the situation, never to be seen again. Despite authorities insisting that this man was John Peel, that has never been proven in a court of law, meaning that legally he is not guilty of this crime, 
in 11, it's released in the years since his acquittal has changed that, especially since authorities have failed to reconsider their options and have not been thoroughly investigating this case since the mid-1980s. Until they do, the stories of Mark, Irene, Kimberly, as well as those of Michael Stewart, Jerome Kuan, Dean Moore, and Chris Heyman will remain unsolved. Thank you for listening to this episode of the True Crime Never Sleeps podcast, Cold Case Files. If you have a theory on this case, send us a voice message at 682-305-0483. And we'd like to thank our sponsor, Pondex. Visit pondex.com. And use promo code TCNS for 10% off your order.